Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome into another edition of the 2020 BGN Draft Specials. This is episode 15, brought to you by the Fine Folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. And for this specific show, if you couldn't tell from the episode title, this is a sequel to episode 14 with Brett Coleman of The Film Room. We are, along with talking about Jalen Hurts, we also went over Coleman's best and worst picks from the first round, according to him. And then we covered some second round values that he really liked. So I'm going to do more of that here today. And to give a bit of Eagles flavor, I wanted to touch on the fit of Jalen Rager to the Eagles. And I think my thoughts on how he works within the structure of the offense for the Eagles is already out there and pretty well known. So I actually want to pull from another resource to talk about this for this part. And for that, I'll go with the director of the Scouting Academy and former scout for the Eagles, one of my many great mentors in this business that you may have heard on this feed before, and that is Dan Hatman. And he did a video breaking down Rager called Best Fits for the Scouting Academy. Uh, I'm going to drop that link in the show notes, and I'll throw it in the accompanying article as well for BGN. One thing I found interesting is that when Hatman pulled different scouts and executives, he found that the public perception of Justin Jefferson from LSU being higher than Jalen Rager was different than how the majority of the league felt, or at least with the people that he had talked with. And I I agree in this video with a lot of points that Hatman made about what Philadelphia needs from its outside receivers, guys that have the ability to dictate coverage, to make the safety wrong in that he has to give help to the outside, which opens up the middle underneath uh, to give that defense something to fear. And also a guy that isn't just a deep threat, somebody that can work all three levels and that area for Raker working all three levels we're talking about nuance now and this is something that has to be worked on but he's shown flashes of working blind spots and snapping off routes and winning early with his releases it just needs to be more consistent because if you watch Deshaun Jackson and all you're watching or paying attention to is when he's running to space 40 yards 50 yards down the field I think you miss a lot about his game that's very important the ability to set up defenders on the less sexy intermediate routes is one of the best parts about his game. So the Eagles have to get Rager to that level. And another thing Hatman mentioned was Yak being a big part of the West Coast offense. And no offense is purely West Coast anymore. And the Eagles have a nice mix, but there's a ton of West Coast concepts in that playbook. And they really lacked a guy with the ability to make guys miss after the catch. For example, and I've cited this stat before, but Next Gen Stats has a stat called Expected Yak, where they leverage their tracking data and calculate at the time of the catch how much yak a player should be expected to get. So for instance, let's say Rager catches a ball. His X yak, according to them, is two yards. He gets three yards. For that play, his X yak differential is plus one. 
on the season, 2019, the Eagles didn't have a single receiver or tight end that was in the black on extract, not one positive one. So it's a component that they have sorely lacked. And when I talk about the next guy, you're going to see the complete opposite effect of that and what it can do for a quarterback. So I won't hang on Rager here any longer. I like the fit. I like the player. He's got work to do to be the three-level threat that the Eagles think he can be, but that's not to say that he's a total project, right? It's the little stuff, but we talked about that too on a recent Kiss and Solak when we talked about the big task ahead for new wide receivers coach Aaron Moorhead. So let's go to another fit in the first that I really liked, and I already kind of alluded to this with the Yak Talk. In the first round, 25th overall, the San Francisco 49ers took Brandon Ayuk from Arizona State, the wide receiver. Uh, first, let's talk about where the 49ers won in the passing game last year. Of 39 quarterbacks, Jimmy G was third in the percentage of yards that came from yards after the catch. That's largely thanks to Debo Samuel and George Kittle. Debo Samuel was fourth among wide receivers in total yak and first in yak average among 36 qualifiers. George Kittle was first among tight ends in total yak and third of 40 qualifiers in yak average at 8.3. Basically, this is the, the best one-two punch in the league when it comes to making things happen with the ball in their hands in the passing game. Now, enter Brandon Ayuk the explosive receiver out of Arizona State. You see where I'm going with this. It should be pretty obvious. Sports Info Solutions graded 37 receivers in their 2020 football rookie handbook, and Ayuk ranked second in yards after the catch with a 10.9 average. So Jimmy G is a pretty average starting quarterback. That, that may sound like a shot. I, I don't think it is. To use Scouting Academy language, he's a starter that you win with, not because of, not in spite of. That has value. This is from the PFF quarterback annual on Jimmy G's game. Quote, overall Garoppolo is one of the league's most accurate passers and his quick releases and decision making have proven to be a good fit in the Shanahan system. He is yet another mid-tier quarterback who will produce at a top 10 level in any given season, unquote. I'm pretty much on the same wavelength here with PFF. Now the question is, how do you get a top 10 season out of a mid-tier quarterback like Jimmy G? Well, you surround him with playmakers, guys that can do it on their own, guys that thrive after the catch with an accurate quarterback, giving them good placement and thus good potential to keep stride and pick up extra yards. In Debo Samuel, George Kittle, and now Brandon Ayuk, you've given Jimmy G three of those types of playmakers that once the ball is in their hands and they have the potential to make one guy miss, and it's a house call. So you can manufacture these guys' touches too. Ayuk caught 25 screens for 241 yards last year. That's almost a 10-yard average on screens alone. We've already seen the different ways they involve Debo Samuel in the offense, and we know that trying to tackle Kittle in the open field is like trying to tackle a sprinting 10-point buck. So while you might not love the value of a pick relative to your pre-draft evaluation of Ayuk, I think you can throw him in the Shanahan offense with an accurate quarterback, and you've got yourself one heck of a threat. And look, the 49ers watched KC dump 21 unanswered on their super tough defense in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl within a matter of like five minutes. And they looked at themselves in the mirror and they said, we know no matter how good the defense is, eventually you have to be able to compete in a boat race, and drafting Ayuk gets you closer to that aim. Now, another wide receiver. We'll go with three wide receivers right off the bat. It was the big talking point going around Eagles, Twitter, and, and the fan base leading into the draft. So I really want to kind of nail down what I think about these guys, where they were selected and whatnot. I don't mind Henry Ruggs being selected at 12th overall. Let me make that clear. 
I think my love for Henry Ruggs is pretty well documented. He was my wide receiver too. I think he's more of a complete receiver than people might think. But at the same time, the really attractive part of his game is his 427 trump card. It's one of the best trump cards in this class. And I was really excited to see how that would pan out in the NFL as a deep threat. So I don't have a problem with the value of this pick. This is exactly around where I think he should have been taken to the Raiders at 12. So no qualms there. Where I have a problem is the quarterback he's being paired with with the Raiders. You have the best deep threat in the draft. And he gets saddled with a shrinking violet of a quarterback like Derek Carr. It is a travesty. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic or to throw shade at Carr. It's just what the numbers say. 2018, 9.2% of his throws were over 20 yards in the air. That's 33rd of 34 quarterbacks. The only quarterback with a lower frequency was Cam Newton. And Newton's second half of the season, if you remember, in 2018, was one where he had to pour every inch of strength into his throws just to get it 10 yards down the field because his shoulder had gotten so bad. 2019 for Derek Carr, 9.4% deep ball frequency, 29th of 35 quarterbacks. That conservative style is all over his analytics. You can go to next-gen stats where they say he was the second most conservative quarterback when it came to quote-unquote aggressiveness, that metric that they have there. He's a quick-game quarterback. He struggles to create and hit deep shots. And listen, I thought he played well last year. I just don't think that's a quarterback you score bunches of points with. And even if he is replaced by Marcus Mariota, well, I have the same issues with him too. So overall, I'm disappointed that this is where Ruggs is landing due to the nature of the quarterback situation or quarterbacks, and really, who knows, maybe he can help Carr come out of his shell and let it rip, but that's one that I'm going to have to see before I believe it. Uh, the other first-round pick, uh, I have a couple more, actually, that I didn't like. I'll go with the quarterback position this time. Is Jordan Love to the Packers, and it's wild that the last playmaker at a skill position that the Packers selected was, in fact, Aaron Rodgers about 15 years ago. And then they go and do this. And it's weird because here's the dead money for Aaron Rodgers if he's cut or traded in the future. In 2020, it's 51 mil in dead money. 2021 is 31.5 mil. 2022 is 17.2. And that's their earliest feasible out. So you're taking the best thing about drafting a future starter at quarterback, right? The rookie contract window. And you're almost entirely wiping out that window because the money attached to Rodgers. Now, where I understand it is when you consider you never wanted Jordan Love starting year one. You just didn't. And they certainly made sure of that. And also for the Packers, they understand that if they don't have a really good player at, at the quarterback position, they're one of the least desirable free agent landing spots in the league. But man, did trying to prevent that future problem come with a heavy cost. Uh, the other one I really didn't like at the end of the first round at pick 29 is Isaiah Wilson, the tackle to the Tennessee Titans. Now, there's a way to twist your mind around this pick. And I saw this when I, I talked about the pick on midday 180 in Nashville. You could say, well, it's a run first team. And yeah, sure, that's their identity right now for the Titans. They're run first and they're run first for the foreseeable future. And I get that. Wilson likely helps in the run game, and the Titans ran the ball at the second highest frequency last year, only behind the Baltimore Ravens. I took out fourth quarter for game script for that stat. Wilson is a massive dude at 350 pounds with elite length. He's a mauler when he gets latched on. That's the plus side of the projection for Wilson. He should acclimate to run blocking just fine in the NFL, but I still have concerns with his athleticism and his technique and ability to hit his landmarks on the outside zone or wide zone schemes that the Titans prefer. So even there, I'm a little iffy. And in the passing game, 
you could argue that the Titans will help Wilson by being heavy in the play action game. And yeah, they probably will. Last year, Ryan Tannehill was the seventh highest play action frequency at a 37 quarterback. So certainly make that case. But if you're making that specific case for Wilson, you're also making it for everybody else. So that doesn't sell me on Wilson himself. That's more about the Titans limiting a potential negative impact via scheme than it is about a specific player providing value. And they've gone through this before as they try to work out the right tackle situation. Everybody thought Jack Conklin had this amazing rookie season because he got a ton of help. And that's great that Tennessee hit Conklin's flaws the way that they did. But when you do that via chip, via alignment, and so on, you are soaking up resources that could be used to produce offense elsewhere. So you're leaving that back in. You're leaving that tight end in. You're getting that tight end out into his route later. You're you're constricting your formation instead of spreading it out and so on. So, I mean, the Eagles did this with Halapulivati Vaitai, who wasn't good, but there were stretches where you didn't notice him as a negative because he was getting so much help. That is a net negative for your offense as far as the resources go. So again, that's more of a Titan cell than a Wilson cell, right? And another Titan cell is Titans offensive line coach, Keith Carter. And landing spot is so key for these guys. I think Carter's done well on his various stops in the league and he's doing well for himself in Tennessee. So there's hope that you can reach Wilson's ceiling with good coaching. The reason that's important is because Wilson was highly recruited coming out. And while he's had stretches of playing well in college, he's never really reached his potential because he never put it together from a technical standpoint. He seemed to just lean on those physical traits to get him through. And while it's great that he could do that in the SEC, it also means that you have an underdeveloped prospect despite receiving really good coaching at Georgia. So what makes us think that the Titans can do what Georgia couldn't do in developing his game? So you can have great coaching, but ultimately it is on the player. So I struggle projecting that with confidence in terms of Wilson's quote-unquote ceiling. And to touch on where Wilson could find himself getting beat in the NFL in terms of pass pro, when he's tasked with protecting on an island, the main thing for me when I watch him is he's got really heavy feet, and he really labors in getting to his landmark on the edge. He's really got to work for it. And what that can lead to is oversetting, right? You're getting too deep in your set, which is flashing a light for any polished pass rusher that tells them the inside counter is right there for the taking. I also think he will struggle with guys that are great hand fighters, as it's not just the footwork with Wilson. The hands are pretty ineffective, too, when it comes to combating advanced techniques. They're heavy hands, but they're not very polished. So you've got this mold of clay with bad habits and development needed, but the landing spot and coaching are a plus. But now you wonder about what type of offseason he's going to get and if it delays his impact or development arc because we have no idea. And that just doesn't go for him. It goes for every rookie. But I do think that question looms larger when you aren't talking about a mostly finished product. And I don't think Wilson is. So I thought this pick was a reach. I'll never be able to wrap my head around it. The, the first round projections that he was getting, Wilson just blew my mind at the time, and I can't believe it became a reality. However, the plus side here for the Titans is they also got LSU quarterback round two, Christian Fulton, pick 61. And if you're paying attention, you know, Fulton was my CB3. He's so like CB3. He was Eric Crocker's CB3 when I talked to him on this series. So I think that's a fantastic value. And if you swap the picks, you're probably happier with how things turned out for the Titans. But just judging the Wilson pick in a vacuum, I have serious doubts. When we come back here on BGN, we are going to cover the best fits, worst fits, the values in the second round. That's coming up next, right after this. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. 
As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back here on BGN for another draft special. This is episode 15 brought to you by SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, Michael Kist here with you flying solo talking about the draft since we got nothing else to do at this point. So we talked about a bunch of first round guys. Let's talk about some second round guys and we'll start on the positive side since I did a couple negative ones. We'll go with Xavier McKinney, safety. He goes 36 overall to the New York Giants. And look, if you watch the Giants for the majority of the season, you know how much of a mess they could be when they were at their worst in their past defense. I mean, watch the first Dallas game, for example. I've posted those clips on Twitter before. They had two massive busts for touchdowns, and that's just a continuation of what's been going on there lately. They allowed 15 plays of 40-plus yards in the passing game. That's second worst tied with the Packers and the Eagles, by the way. Over the last three years combined, they are third worst in the league for that. So getting a guy like McKinney, who is regarded as one of the smartest defenders in the draft is a big plus for them. He's not going to get caught out of position and get you hurt for bunches of yards. I love the player. I love the value. And I think he's going to make a difference in what's been a major sore spot for a leaky defense. Now, there's a lot of players I want to talk about here in this run from 59 to 64. And we talked about that in relation to the hurt selection But there's such good value there, so that's what I want to talk about for this next little snippet. At 59 overall, the New York Jets grab Baylor wide receiver Denzel Mims, the darling of the pre-draft process, getting Darnold some more help after picking up Louisville tackle Mekhi Becton in the first round. My biggest concern with this, of course, is Adam Gase. And if you don't understand why, just look at Devontae Parker's career arc. At 60th overall, the New England Patriots select edge rusher Josh Uche, a slightly undersized guy with incredible juice in his first two to three steps, and acquitted himself very well when talking about the development that he needed when he was at the Senior Bowl. He knows what he has to figure out and develop, and that process has started for him, and when the light bulb comes on for Uche, 
I really think he's going to be dangerous. At 61, of course, Christian Fulton to the Titans. We've beaten that horse enough. You know my feelings on that pick. Slam dunk pick. At 62, the Packers again end up on this list, uh, the, the, the bad side, because this is one of the ones in the run that I didn't like. At 62, the Packers select a head scratcher, the big bruising Boston College running back A.J. Dillon. I'm not sure Aaron Rodgers had either of the first two picks in mind when he talked about the Packers not drafting skill position players. I think it's a massive, massive reach for Dylan, who I don't see bringing any kind of value in the passing game. And if you don't bring value in the passing game, I'm not taking you in the first three rounds as a running back. Maybe not the first four. Uh, at 63rd overall, Kansas City Chiefs linebacker Willie Gay Jr., a guy who went from a day three pick to round two selection after crushing the testing and interviews at the Combine. I got a feeling he went to starting job fairly quickly in KC. And then to end the round at 64 is another personal heartbreaker for me. Jeremy Chin of Southern Illinois, the safety to the Carolina Panthers as they continue to try to transform their defense. Their third pick in a row on that side of the ball. And I'll be honest, I didn't love the first two. But this one, I think, is a home run. As far as the picks that I did not like, let's go back to some wide receiver talk. T. Higgins at 33rd overall, Cincinnati Bengals. I just, I never got the Higgins hype. And I understand you want to add playmakers, and they were planning on declining John Ross's, John Ross's option. And A.J. Green's availability has been hit or miss over the last four years. I, I get all that. I just never saw it with Higgins. I know the production's great. But when I broke him down, I, I didn't see where he thrived in places that I could translate to the NFL confidently. I couldn't project him confidently. And his initial get-off is just sluggish, and that showed up in his 10-yard split of 166 and his 31-inch vert. So if he hits, like he's one that I'll, I'm definitely going to have to go back on to see what I've missed. But I didn't have him in my top 10 wide receivers. I never thought he was a first-round pick. 33 is just too rich for me. Uh, at 43, this is another big reach for me, Cole Komet, the tight end out of Notre Dame, the Chicago Bears pick him up. And I don't know what Chicago is doing, but it's definitely not helping their offense. I didn't see a single tight end I draft in the second round in this class. And the Bears have been flipping tight ends like flapjacks lately, including the release of former Eagle Trey Burton, who they overpaid for in free agency not too long ago. And they also signed the ghost of Jimmy Graham. And it looks like they've completely given up on Adam Shaheen, who was a second-round pick, 45th overall selection, by them back in 2017. And here they are repeating, in my opinion, the same mistake. So I don't know what Ryan Pace has done to deserve this much rope, but you have to think he's running out of it if things don't turn around immediately. And frankly, I just do not see that happening. Uh, another reach for me, I'll go back to wide receiver Chase Claypool at 49 to the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the major caveat here. The Steelers are notoriously excellent evaluators and developers of wide receiver talent. And look, they, they have misses on their resume too. But overall, if a receiver lands with the Steelers, they've got a pretty good shot at being something. And for them to take Claypool at 49 gives me pause on my own evaluation. All that said, I don't know who jumped in Claypool's body and tested for him at the combine. But he doesn't play anywhere near that type of play speed on the field. I mean, people were talking about moving him to tight end for a reason. And finally, I'll wrap it up. I'll hit on a defensive player, 51st overall, Dallas Cowboys, Alabama quarterback Trayvon Diggs. I just don't think he can play. I, I, I just don't. I was actively rooting for them to take Diggs in the lead up to the pick and in a draft that I think the Cowboys summarily nailed. 
this was probably their worst pick. So time will tell on that one. And that's going to do it for this edition of the BGN Draft Specials, talking about the 2020 NFL Draft. Uh, We might have a few more of these, but we're starting to uh, get to the end of the draft content here as we hopefully soon will be starting to transition to more NFL-related content. we got the schedule release coming up and all that good stuff. So I appreciate you joining me. I'm Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist. NFL follow at BGN underscore radio again we appreciate all of the support all the five-star ratings on iTunes the written reviews have been awesome you guys have been awesome we are smashing records it has been a, a fantastic past 30 days past two years for us really so we thank you and uh, I'll catch you on the QB factory I think it's going to be the next show coming out so I'll be talking to Mark Schofield talking about this draft as well so we'll catch you then